Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and we'll be boarding the show from your left ear to your right ear. For as long as I have been covering the airline industry, airlines have been trying to solve the riddle of the fastest way to board an airplane. United is the latest to try again. Ben Baldanza, I know you can solve this airline's Rubik's Cube. Let's talk about boarding and a whole lot more. I know one solution, Scott McCartney, but it's not the United solution. I'm fascinated that a lot of smart people periodically think they have a better way to do it, even though not much has changed. It's the same aisle, the same seats, the same lack of enough overhead bin space, though bigger bins do help, and it's always the same time pressure. I think it's all about onboard baggage, but we'll get to that later. Uh-huh. And speaking of pressure, we're going to talk again to our roving reporter, Chris Sloan, and an incredible experience he had learning about Air Inuit, a Montreal-based airline that has a unique flying mission, flying passengers, cargo, and emergency services in extremely remote areas with really harsh weather, and it's a real pressure. I think listeners are going to enjoy hearing about Chris's adventure with this. Ben, there's increasing financial pressure in the industry, too. United, American, and Alaska all reported third quarter results last week, and it wasn't a pretty picture. United had strong earnings with $1.1 billion in net income, bolstered by strong passenger demand for international travel this past summer. Delta also earned more than $1 billion in the third quarter. American, on the other hand, actually reported a loss of $545 million because of back pay and signing bonuses on its new pilot contract. Even when you back out one-time items, American had earnings of only $263 million, clearly weaker than the billion dollars of Delta and United. American is blaming the obvious, higher fuel prices, but there's more going on than just jet fuel. American is heavier in domestic travel than United and Delta, which are stronger internationally, mostly because of much bigger presence to Asia. That makes a difference. And I wonder too, if American's decision to blow up its corporate sales force is having an impact. We've talked before about how American is losing ground arrivals, mostly Delta, in both New York and Los Angeles. I know the fortunes of the big airlines rise and fall, 
but American clearly is running third in the big three race. The market seemed to like United's results until it heard that international flying will be impacted by the grounding of flights to Tel Aviv, and higher fuel prices would send more money to fuel suppliers than previously expected. United was a $40 stock early last week, but it ended the week at about $35 a share. I'd note that on July 21, United was almost a $58 stock. That's a 40% drop in three months. Across the board, airline stocks have really been beaten up. Back in July, American was near $19 a share. It ended last week near $11, down 42% in the past three months. Delta has fallen from about $49 to around $32. That's only, I say only, 35%. It's been even more of a bloodbath for the low-cost guys. JetBlue has lost half its value since July. Frontier is 60% cheaper than it was in July. Alaska's results, interestingly, fell short of expectations for the third quarter due largely to lower travel demand in the early fall and higher fuel prices, of course. Some of that lower demand was from Maui, devastated by wildfires in August, but Alaska said it will trim its planned growth next year because of lower than expected demand. The airline said moderating its growth was a prudent measure. All in all, it seems clear we're getting back to more normal seasonal demand and maybe kind of a new normal. Pent-up revenge travel demand may well have run its course. Another element to watch, the U.S. State Department issued a rare worldwide caution urging Americans to stay alert at tourist destinations because of the war between Israel and the terrorism group Hamas, plus other Iran-backed terror groups launching attacks. The State Department warned U.S. citizens to exercise increased caution due to the potential for violence and increased tensions around the world. One way to do that, by the way, is to enroll in state's excellent STEP program. It's called the Smart Traveler Enrollment Program. You sign up and you get alerts about events and areas to avoid in the cities you're in when you're abroad. As we said last week, Ben, if terror attacks start happening in Europe and elsewhere, international travel demand could really dry up quickly. Let me slip in this note for our listeners in the Los Angeles area. Next Wednesday, November 1st, I'll be having a fireside chat with Delta CEO Ed Bastian at the Ontario International Airport annual State of the Airport Luncheon. It's a great event at the Ontario Convention Center, a unique event, really. Business leaders come together to support the local airport. Imagine that. It's fun, and I'd love to meet listeners there. Should be a great discussion with Bastian. If you're interested, it's invitation only, but reach out to the email address communityengagement, one word, at flyontario.com. And Ben, United is kind of, sort of, as we talked about, going back to what it used to call Wilma boarding, window, middle, aisle. Of course, status and credit card perks will get you earlier boarding. United hopes to shave two minutes off average boarding time Good luck. Universities and industrial design groups and consultants and generation upon generation of airline executives have studied the problem of how to quickly board an airplane. 
Southwest can do it quicker with open seating because people grab a seat as fast as they can. And Southwest doesn't charge for checked bags, so there's no financial incentive to stuff all your possessions into the overhead bins. You know this better than anyone, Ben. And our mutual friend, Jay Sorensen, the president of IdeaWorks, reminded us recently when we were together in Washington, the boarding problem is the carry-on baggage problem. At Spirit, you imposed a fee for carry-ons that was more expensive than checking a bag. So a lot fewer carry-ons came on board and boarding got much faster. United and others have created the boarding slowdown, and they're not going to solve it simply by reshuffling the passenger deck, right? I think that's right, Scott. No doubt they can do things better and simpler. It has amazed me sometimes how many special categories there can be in boarding as people look to protect group after group. Some make sense, like military people or disabled people. But then you get the multiple ranges of loyalty tier, credit card holding, and all of a sudden you're holding a group on boarding pass, but you're the 10th group to board. (laughs) I think the fewer onboard bags, the faster the boarding. We saw this at Spirit. For sure, in fact, the whole reason for that policy initially was not a revenue play. It was an operational play. We were meeting to discuss how we could have fewer delays at the gate, and it became clear that we had created our own problem. We charged for check bags, but made on board free. So people were bringing everything on board. So by neutralizing that incentive with a fee for on board, the goal wasn't to collect more money. It was to get the bags out of the cabin. And it worked like a dream. And that's why Spirit still does it. Other airlines do it. But the big guys won't touch it. And they can't, you know, although with reduced business travel, the, the argument always was, hey, business travelers would never stand for it. But when once you start giving exemptions to elite frequent flyers, how do you enforce that at the gate? You get to take a bag, but you don't. That's going to be really difficult. That's right. And speaking of things that keep changing in search of a better solution, frequent fire status qualification, Delta announced changes to its previously announced changes, and Southwest announced some changes of its own, and they're going in opposite directions. I I think this is really curious, isn't it? Ed Bastian responded to huge backlash from frequent flyers after Delta announced it was going to make it tougher for elite qualification status, and it was going to base it all 
on spending rather than flying. Bastian said he thought Delta had gone too far. So the new plan shortens the field a bit. For example, for silver status, you'll need to spend $5,000 a year rather than spending the previously announced $6,000 a year. For diamond status, it will be $28,000 qualifying dollars instead of $35,000 qualifying dollars for the year. But the point remains, you have to qualify with dollars, not flights or miles. Delta eased up on the airport club changes too, so Delta may still have the problem of bloated elite ranks and overcrowded airport clubs. Southwest went the other way. It's quite a contrast. Southwest made it easier to qualify for elite status next year. Starting January 1, you'll need 20 flights instead of 25 to qualify for A-list, Southwest's first tier. A-list preferred, the higher tier goes to 40 flights from 50. Credit card spending will count more too. Ben, the Southwest changes seem to be significant recognition that business travel remains depressed by, well, about 20% compared to 2019 levels. Other airlines have said that business travel remains about 20% below 2019 levels. For Southwest, I suspect short-haul business travel is even more depressed than that. What do you think? Is it logical that Delta is tightening while Southwest is relaxing? I think it is, Scott. I think it reflects who's carrying most of the business travel. Delta has too much in a sense that they've got to be more strict. Southwest wants more. So each of their approaches makes sense for where they are. You know, having worked at U.S. Airways, we always saw that carrier, how much more extreme the effects of changes were on short-haul flights versus long-haul. So you've pointed out something really important, Scott. I think Southwest focus on short-haul. Lots of Dallas, Houston, Chicago, St. Louis kind of stuff makes it harder for them to think about a revenue-based versus a Mm volume-based approach. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. 
Duhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. We're happy to welcome back Chris Sloan, our roving reporter. Chris, your aviation magazine work takes you to all kinds of adventures in far corners of the earth. But you recently outdid yourself. You traveled through remote northern reaches of Canada on an Air Inuit flight on an airplane that was a combi, both passengers and cargo. Tell us what this flight was. Well, thanks a lot again for having me on. Uh, This was a I don't know, man. I guess there was the choice for the price that I paid for this trip. I could have flown business class to Dubai, but I chose to go the other direction to the subarctic Canada. And it really was about pursuing one of the very, very last flying passenger 737-200s in the world, which is the first generation of what's still the world's most popular airliner. You know, you have about 10,000 orders and deliveries since this plane was pressed into service in the late 60s. And this particular aircraft is uh, that first generation. Uh, and the only place really these exist flying in the world with scheduled passengers are Iran, and I'm not going there soon. We're not actually welcome there at the moment. Uh, but is, uh, you know, occasionally, you know, you can see them in Zimbabwe and in Venezuela, uh, both hard places to get to. So this really is certainly the last. Uh, scheduled uh, companies still operating them a scheduled service in uh, North America and we're the last in the world. And they are, I believe, the last in the world flying a 737-200 Combi, which, as you said, Ben, is a very, very specially outfitted aircraft that allows it to carry uh, cargo and passengers. And you can adjust the configuration so you can have as few as 34 seats or as many as 112 and it has a massive cargo door. You might be asking yourself, well, why in the year 2023 is some company operating a Boeing 737-200? I mean, they're loud. They're not fuel efficient. They're very, very dated. But if you're Air Inuit or if you're companies that operate a very special mission, they can do things that still to this day, no other airliner can do. And what is that? What's special about this particular plane is that? These villages where this jet flies into is they have gravel runways. We talk about the lack of regional service to cities of 50, 80, 100,000 people. Well, the largest population center these planes serve outside of their base in Montreal is villages that might have 1,200 people. And they're not just an airline, it's a lifeline. There's no roads. There are ships that maybe a few times a year can you know, cut through the ice. This is extremely remote Arctic territory, and you've got bush flying with jets. And so to land a jet on a gravel runway, and you need a jet of this size and scale, 
is uh, is unique because the tooth hundred in this configuration has these uh, different kind of gravel deflection devices on the wheels and the engines t- to keep the gravel from being ingested. A, a seven thirty seven. A mo- there's no modern jets that can kind of do what this can do, and it's crucial that it exists. So the reason I did this is. The last time there was a combi flying in the United States with passengers was 2017. That was the 400. The last real passenger 200 service here was around, what, 2006 when uh, Alaska retired their uh, 737-200 combis. But this plane is a true was a true time machine, and, and that's why I went and did it. But, but, but as I was soon to find out, that actually was the headline. But the story and the journey became so much more than I ever bargained for. Well, tell us more about that. The, the normal rules don't apply to flights like this, do they, right? Um, security or procedures or things like that. But what, what did you find? Well, I mean, uh, you know, maybe I should describe a little about what Aeronauts mission is and what makes them so unique and so different. Uh, you know, as I said, they're not just an airline. They are a lifeline to these villages. So in Canada... You know, let's just talk about Canada for a second. Canada is the second largest geographical nation in the world by size um, and only second to Russia. And 40 million people, the population just about this, uh, just slightly exceeding the state of California. Out of that, you know, roughly uh, 80 percent of those live within, uh, you know, a couple hundred miles of the border. But. There's an entire group of people, the indigenous people of Canada, who still live in the Arctic and subarctic, uh, massive from coast to coast, and that's about and they are, it's about sixty four thousand people, and this is the indigenous people of Canada. What they call what we call Native Americans, they call them First Nations. It's about five percent of the population of the country, but it's also the fastest growing. But they live in extremely extremely remote parts of the country and in very hostile conditions. So what what kind of happened is, is that Canada has really made restitution and has really come to terms with the fact that this these are the native people and this is their land. These are sovereign people. And there's been a lot of development in that area, but there's a real recognition throughout the country that these villages are crucial and need support and are extremely uh, resilient people. And so they're very, very prosperous and resilient. And what they've created is that they basically created uh, in the last 40 years uh, through a lot of development up north um, and for funding they received and, and of their natural resources, created two airlines to serve the north of the entire country. And if you look on a map, you'll be shocked at the scale of this. This is land area bigger than the lower United, uh, lower U.S., so there's an airline called Canadian North, and then there's their sister carrier carrier that I flew, Air Inuit. And Air Inuit really specializes in serving the subarctic and Arctic East, particularly of upper Quebec. And this is for the Nunavut area and the, and, and the, and the Nunavut people. And this is um, a very, very unique mission. So they've got roughly 33 destinations and from the headquarters in Montreal, but imagine that they're, most of those destinations, like where I flew, are uh, the hub is the distance between Montreal and Miami. It's from Montreal to their hubs 
way up north. It's called the north. And so you're talking about servicing about 11,000 people with an airline that has 30 aircraft, including helicopters, jets, uh, 737s, uh, Dash 8s. And they operate in very, very different hostile remote conditions, weather, uh, infrastructure. And as I said, this airline is, when I say a lifeline, it's not just the cargo, but if somebody has a medical emergency on your plane, there, there could be gurneys. They're meant to carry, it's a medevac. They are, they are carrying policemen. They are carrying teachers. They are carrying contractors. They are carrying uh, the local South who need procedures themselves or uh, for the first time are visiting a city. So, you know, there's a service here of what they're doing in the Arctic that really is very, very unique in the world, much like the bush flying you see in Alaska and Alaska Air. But these guys are flying big jets. They've only been around about 40 years. And there are a few of these companies, but particularly in Canada, there's also one called Buffalo Air, which is not owned by the indigenous people. But that's what makes this company unique. It is actually owned by uh, the indigenous uh, you know, people of Canada and um, you would think, oh, well, they're flying really elderly equipment, and it sounds kind of like it is anything but what they've done to these aircraft and how meticulous they are with maintaining them and updating them and that the plans for the future. And so the reason I, again, I'm, and I know I'm, there's a lot to unpack here, but 737-200 Combi is due for retirement uh, within 18 months. So uh, that doesn't. That's when it's going to start being retired. So they have acquired modern equipment. They've acquired, and again, very unique missioned aircraft. They've acquired 737-800 Next Generations from Kalula. I believe is how you pronounce it from South Africa, who has ceased operations. But these planes that they have there have unique abilities to do short takeoffs and landings for jets. And then this company is going to modify the aircraft and also the, the runways uh, to be able to accommodate and fly these planes because you can't just fly them in there. Um, they've got, they, this airline actually goes in to the airports it serves. It's much like the early days of Pan Am. They create and build and design infrastructure to support uh, them and to support operations. They're not landing in just necessarily established places. They're building those bases. They're building that infrastructure and so it's a truly kind of remarkable company because if those planes don't get in, um, people aren't going to eat. People aren't going to have clothes. People aren't going to get medical treatment. It's not just my flights delayed and I didn't get to go to Disney World. It is a crucial service to very, very remote areas. And so we can talk about the flight and what made it special and the unusual security. Um, it was truly fascinating. So what was the service like for passengers? Well, that caught me by surprise. You know, first off, you're on an elderly airplane, right? The 737-200s we were on are 41 years old, and they've spent their entire careers in uh, flying in the north. And so in our case, you know, uh, you know, depending on the time of year, you could have anywhere from only 34 seats up to 112 if you went full passenger. It's all economy but it's a absolute time machine. So when you get on an aircraft like this, and I wanted to sit behind the wing because I really wanted to hear those old low bypass turbofans, really low slung 
I wanted to hear them make that screaming noise. First off, it's crazy loud. When you board the plane, the plane actually has integrated air stairs into the airframe. There's no jet bridges. There's no, most uh, stations don't have, uh, you know, air stairs. You're boarding from stairs on the tarmac, even in Montreal, that are built into the aircraft. You don't see that on jets a lot. When you get on board, you're typically boarding from the rear only because the front of the plane is either a third or two thirds cargo. Sometimes it's up to 25,000 pounds of cargo. They can adjust overnight quick change pallets, they can move the bulkhead and have it be more cargo, less cargo, more passengers, less passengers. So you're boarding from the rear. And in our case, uh, the air, we were in a 76 configuration. You sit down in the seats and it's like the old days of flying. They have like 33 inches of pitch. They're very padded, extremely comfortable. It's all economy. You look up in the air and there's these old school Boeing logos and those passenger service, no smoking logos and the old, you know, twirl the air conditioning and the old, uh, everything just feels, it's like a time machine, but it's actually in like, not mint condition, but it's preserved really well. But the day before, you know, there's, there was cargo sitting where you were sitting. So when you get on the airplane, what do you have on this that you don't have on a modern plane? Well, I have not been on a domestic flight with hot meals in years. Hot meals. And now let's talk, what's what's the significance of a hot meal? Well, first off, the fares are extraordinarily expensive unless you are getting what's called a par fare, which is a subsidized fare for people who are locals or uh, who are necessary. But you're flying, you're on an hour and a half leg. I did three legs and you're or you're on a three hour leg and you're getting a full hot meal. And I'm talking about generous portions and a hot meal to a lot of people who are local who have never had been exposed to this kind of food or these kind of drinks where us Coca-Cola is $5 in the village or a bag of chips is eight bucks or a hot meal like a steak or chicken. It's really delicious actually with biodegradable silverware. Well, that's not even something they're used to having where they live. And so these meals are kind of like, it's kind of like a treat, you know, and it's, uh, and it was really delicious. And it's like, there was like beautiful salmon meals and these stuffed chicken. That was like better than business class meals I've had in economy with a choice of your entree. And then everything you can drink, there's no alcohol. Um, there used to be years ago until COVID, but there's no alcohol, but, um, you know, imagine being on a plane where they say to everybody, look, uh, everybody's entitled to take a couple of free drinks with you, take some Cokes or juices, because if a can of apple juice is $3 in your village, you can imagine the value of that. So that was kind of cool is that your comfortable seats, hot meals, it must, it felt like 1980. The only thing missing was there was no smoking on board. Now, um, but the other thing I was surprised with is they actually... Uh, have an in-flight entertainment system. So they have a modern in-flight entertainment system with streaming video. There's no Wi-Fi up there because they barely have Wi-Fi where they live. And most villages, people were telling me they were getting the plane with their iPhones and they were like, yeah, we go to the airport to get pickup internet. So it's like to be able to stream to your device, it's a cognitive dissonance. You're flying a 40-year-old aircraft and you're streaming movies. So I thought that was really uh, kind of a surprise itself uh, in terms of service. So they always have two flight attendants. So the service is very, very uh, special. And you have people uh, speaking uh, in French, English, and 
in Inuit. So you're having a tri-language service. And, um, and the plane itself is just flying a, a time machine like this. I mean, these things are workhorses. And uh, watching the wing and watching the flaps and just watching the, uh, just the whole cadence of the flight, you know, is really, really unique. Uh, you're watching very unique terrain. Look, I was flying in the summer when flying conditions are pretty mellow, but you can only imagine the kind of uh, conditions they were dealing with. Scott, you asked about security. I've never been on a commercial airliner jet where there wasn't a security, uh, a classic security check. So in all these, you know, the, the jets, now this airline does fly these things to on charters and they have a 737-300, which operates on other broad routes. But the, the combis, uh, when they're operating with passengers, fly to three to four destinations. And two of those destinations in particular uh, the villages only have like, you know, 1,200, 1,800 people. So there's not necessarily uh, CATSA, which is their version of TSA. There's not necessarily security screening up there. You know, there's you walk past the gate. So what happens is, and this was I've never seen, is, you know, we're, we're boarding on the second leg and we're going heading back south to Montreal and there's no security check, which I found fascinating. And it's like, so, but you can't enter the Canadian mainstream air system without a security, without security check, but they can't possibly have in all these villages, uh, there's version of security. I mean, the, everybody's, believe me, there's a lot of attention paid to security. People are watching and looking very closely and there's a lot of rules. Um, but all the flights heading south, you know, where that, where there wasn't security have to actually, we actually have to stop in Legrand, which is the headquarters of the big, I forget the, how the phrase, hydrological power. But this is a area. So it's imagine we stop at like an, a, a stopover and it's not a technical stop for fuel, but it's a stop where everybody gets off the plane, all personal effects and everything is screened. And then all the cargo pallets are screened, which was cool for me because I got to go check out the cargo pallet and see the cockpit. And which is all, by the way, I want to point out, they've converted to glass, which kind of was amazing to me. And so everybody comes off and everything is screened for security. And then everybody boards and there's no real, there's very little local traffic. It's not like there was that many people being let on or let off, um, but it's like a security hub. And then, then you continue back on to Montreal into the system into Quebec city. So that alone was extremely uh, unique. And also just, you know, they're delivering crews and power and, and you know, the way they crew is very different. So this very much had about nothing in common with any normal airline operation I've ever seen. Well, it's great they provide this service. And it's so great that you went up and saw it, Chris. Tell us, what was your favorite part about the whole thing? Well, I think the favorite part of it was just learning more about the operation and meeting the people behind it and the, and the people who were taking it and how important it was. I, again, initially was a joy ride on an old classic plane. That was like, a you know, stepping back in time. But what became so special was, first off, the people, right? There's a thousand employees, roughly. And they're not there just working at this airline building hours, they believe they are mission driven. They're really passionate about it. They're really proud of what they're doing. They are, there's true airmanship and camaraderie and they like the lifestyle. By the way, it's non-union and that you like the lifestyle. 
oh, you mean so I can go freeze my tukas off in minus 40 degrees? Well, what's cool is these guys can be on for two weeks and then be off for two weeks because they, the airline literally has to build in, you know, builds, a, has accommodations, has their own housing and meals and all that for them. And they develop this camaraderie. You know, a lot of people are based in those up the, way up there, but locals, it, this company provides a lot of jobs, but also a lot of local people from Montreal. And there's people based all over uh, Canada who fly to Montreal and then work because they're gone for a while. And then they kind of come back. It's almost like the oil, the way oil rig workers on the North Slope. These people can get incredible build hours. And some days, some days they can have tw- fly as short as 25 mile sectors with 12 to 13 rotations a day. You can imagine how that builds hours. Sometimes it's, some people fly very low hours, 40 to 50 hours, because these aircraft are flying, you know, fairly short sectors or, you know, I mean, uh, you know, so it's, it's interesting. But these guys have incredibly, you can't just go fly for them. I mean, you need to have 6,000 hours on a 737 or three hours on a dash to be a captain. Uh, people really want to be there and they stay there and it takes a long time to build seniority. So it's, uh, it's very much of a family. And these are true airmanship. I mean, you're talking about conditions where you're dealing for domestic flights, you're dealing with like long range HF frequency air traffic control. You're not in the conventional air traffic control patterns up there. You're not in necessarily radar control. You are in areas where temperatures are at best in 50 degrees, 60 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer for a very brief time. But most of the time, you know, minus 30, minus 40, minus 50, a, ma- a massive amounts of de-icing. And yet they've got an incredible safety record, impeccable maintenance. People, these employees love to fly these aircraft because they have a lot of, of you know, confidence in, in what they can do. So that, that the people there were really, really uh, interesting and just their you know, the way they, they live in their lifestyle, I thought was fascinating. And then I guess the last part was, uh, again, the, uh, the people that I flew with, I was sitting next to a guy who was like excited to go to Montreal. And he's like, he speaks perfectly English, obviously very intelligent. Um, sitting there on his iPhone, he's telling me about how he's never had a pizza before. He's never been to seen a movie in a theater, but he watches Netflix. He was watching some of the same stuff I was. And so you're sitting next to people who he in particular works on the ramp uh, and at a a number of different destinations. And he flies the airline to go visit friends and family. And um, but he's like, well, this is the first time I've ever I'm going to eat in a McDonald's. And that's really cool. So, you know, McDonald's is can be like their Disneyland. And you're seeing people who I was sitting next to another gentleman who. Um, you know, was coming back after having been in the hospital for months because they had they don't have them up there. And he's like, he had flown down in a gurney, like they literally have a medevac. The, they take three rows out, put a curtain over, and they can have a couple of people and a team of doctors on the plane. And he was coming home to see his family, and that's the only way they uh, there. So when you're sitting with such an eclectic group of people, and they're really warm and really friendly and really curious. And I guess the last thing is what made it feel like a time warp is even though there was an entertainment flight system, what were people doing? They were talking. The cabin was loud, drowning out the loud of the engines were people talking like the old days and playing cards. And I was like, really, it really was a beautiful uh, time machine. And I've done a lot of interesting adventures and I've done the Alaska bush flights, but this was, man, I just can't say enough 
uh, about Aaronwood and just this um, this experience. And last thing is, they didn't pay me to say this. I had to pay dearly for this privilege. <laughs> um, it, was, uh, worth, it was worth every uh, Canadian dollar. Well, well, Chris, thank you so much for taking us along on on this incredible adventure. Um, really fun and and, uh, and really great. And if if listeners are interested in photos from it, are you posting any of them on your your site, uh, archive.net? Well, funny you should ask that, Scott. Thank you for asking. Um, once again, you're always uh, giving helping me with my shameless plugs. But yes, uh, <laughs> there are photographs of of this uh, flight. Uh, on uh, on on the uh, on the site thearchive.net, and also there'll be an upcoming story uh, coming up very soon in Airliner World uh, magazine, which is a a fun uh, aviation enthusiast mag- magazine. A, a few issues here where uh, you can see uh, this real interesting, really interesting uh, journey. And uh, and if anyone wants to join me, because now I, now that I've seen this thing, I want to go back in the winter. You guys want to go uh, to northern Canada for a little, like a little. Uh, reverse snowbird trip any takers i'm going to the beach this winter thanks very much i'm joining scott thanks Thanks for leaving me hanging guys well thanks for being with us today it's it's great to catch up with you thanks chris thank you Promotional consideration provided by the archive.net, celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard the archive.net. Thanks again to Chris for the really interesting look at a different kind of airline operation. It's a good reminder of the importance of air service to remote communities all around the world. Ben, as usual, some very interesting questions from listeners this week. Ryan from St. Louis says, Hi, Ben and Scott. I've been a loyal listener for a couple of years now. I have a question about the Airline Consumer Report from August 2023. The Department of Transportation is showing that for the month of June, four out of five of the top on-time airlines were regional affiliates, and I have a hard time understanding why. Do you think it's because... They have been less subjected to ATC delays at major airports. Would love to hear your thoughts. Ryan, this is a really interesting observation. Thanks for pointing it out. It wasn't quite as stark in the September report, but really interesting in the August report that you cite, which covered the month of June. I'd say a couple things. First, I think mainline carriers have really pushed regional partners to improve their operations because the DOT now counts regionals with mainline in overall on-time performance. Private flight tracking services do this too. I really pushed for inclusion when I was doing data and rankings at the Wall Street Journal. doesn't really matter to the passenger who's flying the flight. You bought a ticket on an airline, the whole airline should be counted, regionals and mainline. Second, I think maybe the New York storms of late June and the air traffic control ordered schedule reductions probably reduced regional affiliate exposure to New York and other congested areas. When airlines need to thin schedules, they often take the smallest planes out. So having fewer regional flights in New York probably improved Mm -hmm. their on-time results. What do you think, Ben? I think that's all right, Scott. I would add one more thing. Compared to mainline jets, 
a higher percentage of customers on the regional feed connect at the hub. Therefore, it's important that they're on time to meet their jet. The way they do that is they have bigger pads in their flights, meaning more time. Mm. And because if they arrive in Chicago late, they not only have a late arrival for their DOT report, but 50 people screaming the flight to Munich already left. Yeah. And so there's a combination of airports they serve, incentives they have, and the way they're managed because of their high connectivity. Very interesting. Hey, Ben, one other note on the DOT's Air Travel Consumer Report, which is a really important resource for tracking airline performance and customer service. Uh, Throughout my career, I've used it a lot. The DOT hasn't reported consumer complaints for the past five months. Why? Because there have been too many complaints. The DOT says it can't process all the reports it's been getting. Seriously, I'm not making this up. Complaining to the DOT is an important option for travelers. Those complaints get more attention at airlines because airlines have to respond to the DOT about each complaint. And somehow, now the DOT doesn't have enough staff to process the complaints, or it doesn't want to, or it doesn't really care about airline service. We have a shortage of air traffic controllers and apparently a shortage of complaint processors. So step it up, DOT. In September, the DOT notice said, and I quote, it is increasingly clear that consumer complaints are not returning to pre-pandemic levels. No kidding. I think maybe we need to add complaint processing to our Aviation Manhattan Project task list. That's really funny, Scott. (laughs) And... I'm tossed on this one because part of me wonders why the DOT is still in the business of processing complaints. If I go to McDonald's and I don't like pickles on my hamburger, so I order it without pickles and I get a hamburger with pickles, There's no one in the federal government I can complain to about that. Or when I buy a car or a refrigerator or anything, it's a holdover from when the industry was regulated. Social media do a much better job of which airlines are treating customers right and which ones are much more timely, much bigger data set. So over time, I think the DOT complaints have become less important and in some ways irrelevant compared to the world of social media. Your point that the airline has to spend more time on them is right, though. So I'm tossed on this, 
but it doesn't bother me as much that they're just not doing it. It's not like that information is not available. Just go to TripAdvisor or one of the many online sources and you can see what consumers are saying about every airline. Yeah, that's true. It's not in as data specific. Um, you know, the DOT gives you a rate per passengers and plane and, and all of that, which would be hard to do with social media. Um, but I, I hear the point. Um, to me, the difference is with most other consumer operations, you can complain to the state attorney general's office. Uh, and sometimes uh, state attorney generals will see a whole bunch of complaints about something and take some action. That can't happen in the airline business because there's no state oversight. It's only federal. And the only way to sue an airline is either a federal class action or, or small claims court. You can't go to state court. I think it's beneficial for the industry and for passengers. Um, I, I think the you know airline people often complain hey, it's a small number. You could get five complaints about one flight and that's really going to skew your, your rate. And that's true. I've found over the years that as a comparative statistic, it's really pretty accurate, right? In terms of who's doing well and who's not doing well. It's not so much the actual rate that matters. It's how you compare to your competitors. And, you know, is Frontier getting a whole lot more complaints than Delta is. Well, that says something about the relative service. It may also say something about how well each airline trains its, <laughs> its customers to complain about the service. But I think it's a useful consumer um, measure. And I, 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 for one, would hate to see the DOT give it up. Um, I think it's ridiculous to say we're not going to publish it because there have been too many complaints. Um, that's exactly when you need to be publishing it. Um, because there's clearly a problem um, with uh, how how consumers are viewing the airline service they're getting. It's a great point, Scott. Any listeners who have views on this, let us know what you think. Do you count on the DOT as a way to manage your own complaints, or do you take it right to the internet? Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with more. And thanks a lot again to Chris Sloan for subjecting his body to all kinds of things <laughs> in the name of great podcasts. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.